The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Episode number one. No, sorry. I'm like living in the past. Where is are it, you? Is it 222? 222. 222. You are correct, Holly. Yes. And I think probably for the first time ever, we've, I mean, I think we've done a musical clip once before, but how about doing a movie clip to kind of get into who our guest is this week? Yes, let's do it. Our guest this week is Richard Bell. He is the writer-director of Brotherhood. It's an independent Canadian film, and here is a little sneak peek. At this camp, you'll get out of it what you put in. Games, duty, devotion. Risk builds character, Mr. Langdon. Challenge builds character. This is a leadership camp, not a holiday. What are the chances of us getting the shore? Do you see the shore? From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today has shed his blood with me, shall be my brother. And that is just a snippet of an amazing trailer, what looks to be an incredible movie. And we are sitting down and talking with the incredible Richard Hill, my friend. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for saying yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. Holly, Holly will That's send my you that $5 at some point. Uh, <laughs> Richard, we like to ask the skill testing question because we never know where it's going to go. Who are you and where did you come from? So my name is Richard Bell. I live in uh, Vancouver and I'm a filmmaker, writer and director. Um, let's see. Uh, I've made uh, two feature films now. The My most recent one is called Brotherhood. My one before that was called 18. I got my start in the industry uh 20 years ago with a film called Two Brothers, which was a really, really low budget independent uh, film that was based on a one act play that I wrote when I was in drama school. Mm -hmm. So I went to a conservatory style theater school from about 19 to 23 years of age. Um, I going through theater school, I realized that I acting wasn't for me. I actually went in feeling like I was a very good actor and I left feeling like I was the worst actor in the world. Uh, so I took a, this one act play that I wrote while I was in drama school and I made it into this movie called Two Brothers. So it cost about $545 to make, which was incredibly like cheap. But the, um, you know, people really enjoyed the story and the acting in it. And uh, I was quite clever in that I marketed it as a $545 movie. And this was kind of like at the, <laughs> not really the birth of the digital film movement, but people were really like the media really picked up on that. And uh, the film was about an hour long. So it wasn't a feature length film, but it had legs and it had traction and it ended up showing out a lot of independent, uh, very small uh, film festivals around the world. And that kind of launched me. It gave me the contacts, the credibility that I needed to raise the money to do 18, which came out in 2006. And uh, it, uh, you know, it, it had good street cred, you know, uh, it, it was narrated by Sir Ian McKellen and Alan Cumming was in it and actors Carly Pope and Brendan Fletcher. And uh, the Vancouver Symphony did the score, which was extraordinary. 
so they say that making your first movie is easy and making your second movie is hard. And I'm really living proof of that because 18 was released in 2006. And it wasn't until 2017 that I was actually shooting another feature film, which is Brotherhood. Um, so so I, I feel like I don't have a lot of I don't have a lot of credits. However, I am really proud of what I, my output has been. And each of the projects have been a quantum leap forward. So, uh, you know, Two Brothers, the first film was, you know, a paltry $545. The second film, 18, was uh, like a $800,000 movie that, you know, had the look and feel of something much bigger. I'm not going to say what the budget of Brotherhood was, but it was, you know, a much, much further along and uh, so each of my work, uh, each of my films are getting bigger and better as I go. Um, uh, I would never compare myself to a great director like Terrence Malick, but Terrence Malick is, is one of those directors whose output is very low, but his quality is very formidable. I think he's only made like six or seven feature films in his lifetime. And I think that might be the way that I'm headed, just, you know, based on the numbers, I was actually joking, like Brendan Fletcher uh, was in 18 and he was in Brotherhood. And so the first day we were on set doing Brotherhood, uh, you know, we hadn't worked together and it was like uh, 14 years or so. And he was like, well, Richard, I look forward to being in your next film, you know, when we're all 61. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's kind of like the way it's going. So I would say that's me in the nutshell. You know, I... I was very much, you know, I came from a very small town outside of Vancouver called Port Coquitlam. You know, it's a bigger town now. Um, and uh, when I was, I was always as a kid, like involved in, you know, cam- the camcorder was a new thing. And I would, you know, make little movies with uh, the school camcorder. And um, when I was in junior high school and high school, there was a film program but I was more immersed in drama. So I did all the plays, the high school plays, you know, I played like the James Dean part in rebel without a cause in grade 10 and grade 11. I did the crucible and one flew the cuckoo's nest and uh, we did hair and West side story. And I was in all those plays and stuff. And it was my high school drama teacher who told me that uh, I needed to go to theater school next. So I, uh, after I graduated high school, I went to Studio 58 at Langara College, which is like one of the, like a conservatory style drama school. And, and uh, yeah, so now I'm full circle. I'm telling this story in very cyclical ways, but, um, <laughs> you know, I do actually believe that time is a bit cyclical and, and, and that's the way it kind of just works. Do you think because of, uh, I I mean, you said like camcorders were kind of a thing. Now everybody has an iPhone. Everybody seems to film with Twitter or Tikataka or Instagram. Does that make it that maybe there will be more film directors that will be in the future because of us constantly having a camera on us? I mean, that's a good question. I think that, I mean, yes, but the cream really needs to rise to the top. And it usually does like there's more content out there, but it doesn't mean that it's any good. Right. Like, so everybody is kind of like filming themselves, you know, doing whatever TikTok challenges or, um, 
you know, silly videos and hijinks. And I mean, I definitely did that sort of thing, like my version of it when I was in high school. Um, but the, I don't know, the, I think that there's probably just more noise. Um, and the really talented people, of course, will hopefully rise to the top. But mm -hmm. I think my worry is that because there's so much content, there's so much noise, there's so many, so many videos um, that the people who are truly talented won't even get seen because of all the clutter. Hmm. So it might be like a blessing and a curse. Like hmm. I, you know, I definitely like, yeah, you can, you know, I guess you, you know, you can make a movie with your iPhone now, but also kind of like who wants to watch that movie because an iPhone is just so common Right. Like, you know, I was watching I was watching the uh, Apple keynote the other day, you know, and they said the 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 cameras can now rack focus and stuff like that. And yeah. and I'm like, OK, well, that's great. And and people can do that. But it it's kind of like if everything's an iPhone movie, then what's so special about that? I, I still do believe that you need like a cinematographer who is a poet and a wizard and you need the right lenses and you need the right crew and all that kind of stuff. So, and, and that's kind of weird for me to say because my first film, Two Brothers, the $545 one was shot with a camcorder, like an eight millimeter tape camcorder. And I had a, I had the microphone duct taped to the end of a vacuum cleaner attachment. And that was my boom <laughs> mic. And, and, a lot of the actors had to hold their own microphone while they were doing the scene and stuff. You can hear the wind blowing against the microphone. So you don't need a huge crew and you don't necessarily need top of the line technology to tell a compelling story, of course. However, I don't want to tell another story without that ever again. Like mm -hmm. I did that out of necessity. It's not, how I want to continue like it's um it's the equivalent of doing like what I did 20 years ago is the equivalent of doing like a chalkboard drawing it's like yes like I, I'm glad that I was able to demonstrate to people that I had uh, a little bit of talent but I don't want to work with a chalkboard and chalk for the rest of my life I want to work with all the acrylic paints and and all the fine canvases and I want to work with all the best people so I guess in a way, I'm kind of envious of the technology that exists today. However, 20 years ago, when I was making Two Brothers, I thought having a video camera, a camcorder was the best thing in the world. Like 20 years ago, I thought I was living in the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met a friend from high school and he said, oh, Richard, we can, you know, download um, all the your eight millimeter tape into my computer and we can edit it and, and at that time when I was making two brothers I thought I was going to edit it together by hooking up two VCRs together so I thought that was magic like I remember mm. saying to him oh you mean like I can cut to someone else and you can still hear the original person talking like I thought that was magic so mm -hmm. it's kind of like the technology is is um you know I, I would say like probably since the 1990s it's gotten cheaper and cheaper to make movies but just because it's got cheaper and their access is easier i don't know if that necessarily means that 
that the films are going to be any better. It really does start with the artist and the writer and the director and a creative producer and then a team where everyone is bringing their A game. Do you find that being an actor's director has been beneficial in the process? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, and it was interesting with Brotherhood because it was a very young cast and it was like about 14 to 25 year olds and um, really talented guys, but they hadn't been to drama school and I had. And so I kind of just kind of confused them with some of the things that I kind of made like the exercises that I made them do, which was I'm very much a product of like a conservatory style drama school uh, where you have to really work and do different exercises and, and do different, not necessarily games, but I guess games are, is a way of describing it. Warmups of sorts. Yeah. And I just kind of, I also just prescribed a lot of homework. Like I, I, uh, I used or referenced three books when I was writing Brotherhood and, and I gave them all a reading list. Like, I don't know if all of the actors read the books, but mm-hmm. like, I know that the casting director thought it was absolutely hilarious and took a great amount of pleasure in contacting all of the actors agents and saying, there's a reading list from the director. Um, so, so I would just do like different things. Like, I mean, one example, I think when we were on location is we were, you know, doing a table read and, and one of the books um, I, uh, I, I cut up, I cut it up and I cut pages out and I put all the different paragraphs in a, in my ball cap. And then I walked around the room and I had the actors pull out a passage and they would read it. And we would sort of like ruminate on that. This book was called Iron John, which is the story of, you know, Brotherhood is a movie about boyhood and manhood and masculinity. And Iron John was a book that I think it was written in the 60s or 70s, which is about the, the story of, of men and masculinity as told through myth. Mm. Um, so, so that was like one of the exercises that they did. So, yes, I have a huge connection to my actors and a kinship with my actors. And I would say that I speak the actor's language because I went to drama school. Like this sounds like a big judgment, but I don't really like lazy actors. And, and I certainly didn't hire lazy actors, so I didn't have to worry about it. But like, I like actors who, who bring their A game, who do a lot of research. And, you know, like I gave them all like homework as far as like actor uh, character bios to do, which was like they need to write about their character, like what they had for breakfast, what their daily life is like, you know, and this is within the world of the 1920s because Brotherhood takes place in 1926. And uh, they all did that, you know, and we gathered in a circle and we went on a camping trip and everybody read their bios and then when the leads, uh, Brendan Fletcher and Brendan Fair arrived, you know, they went for a walk um, with the actors and they just had a private moment where, you know, the young actor, 14 years old, 16 years old, would read their character bio to these more established actors. And, and they were very moved by that. And, and that adds cohesion to the group. That adds a fellowship to the group that I think is just amazing. Do you find it or is it more difficult to do a movie back in the past than it is to the present or the future because of making sure the clothing is right or the vehicles are right or everything is to time back in the 1920s? If I had my way, I think probably all of my movies would be period pieces because mm. I think that my idea of like a nice heaven would be that 
I die and I get to time travel. Like that I die and I go to heaven and God would say, where do you want to, when do you want to go? And, and I think that that is the thing that is most magical about film is that we get to time travel, you know, that we can be in like, you know, 19th century London and hear like, you, you know, the, the horseshoes on the cobblestones. And because that's something that I don't hear in my daily life. Yeah. So, so no, to answer your question, it's not hard because that sort of thing is a pure pleasure to me. It's like, I get to time travel. I get to be Marty McFly in the DeLorean. And, and I get to, and I enjoy all that kind of research to see what the world was like in 1926. And, and you know, when I was writing Brotherhood, it was also investigating and taking a deep dive into what the world was like in the 1910s the movie is very informed by the great war and the spanish flu that happened afterwards so that's all a pleasure to me and then also like i had really good department heads like uh my costume designer's name is ginger martini and she like did such fine and delicate and you know obsessive work in, in a good way on the costumes to bring that all to life and uh and, you know, researching the music and what the games people played and maybe what movies they'd go to. I, I find that stuff to be so rich and rewarding and extraordinary. And, and, and I feel like that's kind of like what we go to the cinema for. Like, like, why go see real life? Like, I spend my whole day in real life. And, and the other thing that, like, I think that the greatest movies of all time are the movies that did an exceptional job at world building, where it's like you go and you're watching it and you're like, wow, they thought of every single detail. And for me, I really love details within details within details. Mm -hmm. And like a story that I tell quite often is, is that, um, and, and, and this is also because of my drama school roots, is that. I gave the actors, like I said to the prop department, I want a bunch of ephemera, like little props and things, playing jacks, cards, chewing gum, um, you know, a compass, marbles, jacks, and, and just for the actors to have in their pockets, you know, so you have that weight in your pocket. Or if you, an actor puts his hand in his pocket, he feels his playing jacks. You know, no iPhones in your pockets. Like, and these are things that you do not see in the movie, but I think that they're things that um, you feel. And it's all part of the world building. Any like favorite movie that anybody has, I think that if they would pause and think about why they like the movie, they would say they did such a great job at world building. Forrest Gump comes to mind. Well, there you go. I mean, Robert Zemeckis is an extraordinary director. He told a story that was told across time. Mm -hmm. And the, I mean, I haven't seen the movie in many, many years, but I do remember the detail within the detail within the detail. And, you know, he wove in Forrest Gump's story into all these, you know, iconic moments in American history and having him meet JFK and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, yeah, like, we're in that world and it's magical because of it. Do you watch films? Do you see films differently through the eyes of a director? Or can you sit back and take that mask off and just enjoy movies for what it is? Well, it's not a mask. Um, it's, it's just kind of like, I think I'm just, it's more hardwiring. It's, it's not sure. something that I put on or, or take off. 
but I understand what you mean, like director's hat kind of like thing. I would say yes and no. I, I would say that when something is being done badly or not as good as it could be, that's probably when I, the, I guess I, my director's hat is on. Sure. Uh, I, I know that I'm watching something really good, of course, when I'm swept away or there's times when I've been watching something that's good where I can't even believe that the person I'm watching is actually an actor. Like, I'm like, that feels like a real person, you know, or that feels like a real location or of course, usually it is, but, uh, or it's like, or is that somebody they found on the location and is not a professional actor, but it's just so real. So I don't know, like kind of like wearing a director's hat and watching something kind of implies that for me, it kind of implies that maybe I'm watching it critically and, and I don't, really go into things watching things critically because I don't want to like I want to just appreciate someone's work if I'm taking the time to watch it but I guess there are times when I'm watching something and I'm I'm like oh that's done well or I guess maybe it's more maybe when things don't quite hit the mark that maybe I fall out of the story and and maybe that's putting my director's hat and kind of wondering why it doesn't work Thinking back of when you started to notice that passion for acting and for film, how supportive was your family in that? Because I find often if you're going to be an actor, parents are like, well, what's your real job going to be? What yeah. was that like on the family side growing up? Uh, I've definitely experienced that and and probably still to this day. Um, like my family, I have a very loving family and they are very supportive and I, but yeah, they don't, I don't, I would say they probably don't quite get what I do. And um, yeah, that's kind of hard. Like, I would say that my mom is very proud of me in her way, but I think that my mom would probably have been happier if I had gone to university and, you know, gotten a BA or gotten a master's or there's no, it, there's, it's never been explicitly said to me, get a real job but I feel that um I had a, a family member uh you know about five weeks after they had seen the movie um you know comment to me that uh that you know that um no frills was hiring um like stock what? boys <laughs> yeah oh my goodness <laughs> and that that really hurt that no really, really, really stung. But I'm not, I'm not unique in that. Like, you know, I, obviously I do have actor friends and, and, and filmmaking friends. And I think, I think that a lot of people, I mean, I'm being really hesitant now because I absolutely adore my family and I don't want to say anything. I don't want to say anything badly about them. You know, my mom has never seen the movie um, and she hasn't really expressed any interest in seeing it. And there was a, f a funny moment because I, I, um, I just did like a little mini Ontario tour where Brotherhood screened in uh, Oakville, Hamilton and Waterloo. And, and uh, I was like signing posters afterwards and people were coming to my table and it was, you know, like a nice little moment. And these two ladies came in and she, she was like, oh, your mother must be so proud of you. And I was like, oh, my mother's never seen the movie. And they were like, what? Like, like what and this one lady was like give me your mother's phone number <laughs> <laughs> you know and and but i know my mom's love of me is absolute 
uh, and unflinching and unshakable. But I, I guess she just doesn't under quite understand what I do. And, and, and it is probably from a place of love where it's like, get a real job, you know, like work for the government or, you know, get paid holidays and all that kind of stuff. Um, being a filmmaker in Canada is, is, is a ridiculous thing to be like, there's, there's not money in it. There's not security in it. So, you know, as much as it pains me to answer that question, I mean, I do have to answer it honestly. And, and I would say that, yeah, there is kind of like that feeling of when are you going to get a real job? Yeah. I feel like you have a real job when you're impacting people in an, an incredible way. Um, but it's okay. Well, my I mom doesn't like do listen too. to this. My mom doesn't what? listen to my work either. So. Right. Right, right, right. <laughs> Maybe it's a parent thing. They're like, we know you, we love you. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that if, I know that if I took my mom to the theater to see it, like if I drove her there and helped her to her seat and <laughs> she would sit there and she would watch it, you know, like brotherhood has also come out during COVID as well. And, you know, mm -hmm. it is streaming, but like I'm, it's on Shaw on demand, but my mom has never said, let's put on brotherhood. I'm dying to see it. Like she's never said that to me. And yeah, so I don't know. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but but I, I, I know that it's not unique. Like, it can't be unique. And, I, you know, you just said it's not unique. Like, your mom will never listen to your podcast. So no. I have to mean download it onto her yeah. iPhone. I'm like, this is how you get podcasts, mom. She's like, well, oh. I'm impressed that your mom has an iPhone because my mom doesn't even know how to work the microwave. You're doing, you're doing these uh, small tours. That, as you said, the movie had come out and then the COVID hit. For those who haven't seen the film... What do you want people to get from it? Brotherhood is about a, a certain kind of dignity and, and sacrifice and heroism that I wonder if it even exists today. I think that the, what the boys did was quite extraordinary. Uh, them clinging to the canoe for the course of an entire night. Some of them giving up their spots in the canoe so the younger boys would have a chance of survival. It just impacts me so deep deeply that you know what these boys went through and the kind of quiet dignity they displayed i certainly would want you know i think that we go to see movies to see moments of heroism and dignity and to see look at things and say oh could i do that like am i capable of that am i capable of that quiet dignity of that heroism of that sacrifice putting others before me so i hope that people walk out going i want to be a better person like a little bit better just a tiny bit better mm. and the film is called brotherhood and it's about boyhood and coming of age and masculinity and and the theme that theme is is in the film and so you know particularly i hope that it makes boys uh walk out of the theater and go i, I want to be a better man uh, I've noticed there's a bit of a, a theme with the movies that you are releasing. You've got the the two brothers, eighteen yeah. brotherhood. Yeah. Uh, in your own life, I'm guessing you have brothers as well. I mean, I'm absolutely delighted that you asked me that. And yeah, I guess that is. I mean, two brothers, and then eighteen is obviously about youth and brotherhood. Mm. So I, um, I mean, it pains me to say that I have normally like my default is I have two brothers, but. I lost my older brother last summer, mm. so I have one brother now. Um, so, so yeah, so brotherhood has the the theme and the idea 
and the concept of brotherhood is is something that is very tender to me uh has always been uh the last time i saw my older brother was actually at a screening of brotherhood uh, it was on march 14th of um, 2020 three days before the the theater closed and everything shut down and i introduced brotherhood um and uh my younger brother was there and my older brother was there. And I said, you know, I'm how delighted I was that my brothers were in the audience. And, and I feel like the luckiest brother because I get to know what it feels like to be an older brother and a younger brother uh, being the middle child. Um, Unfortunately, that was the last time I saw my older brother. Uh, He died of a fentanyl um, poisoning five months later. Uh, when I was actually, uh, I found out when I was in Ottawa, I was just about to present Brotherhood, the Mayfair Theatre in Ottawa on August 14th. And, um, and I had to fly home and, and cancel a mini tour that I had set up at the time then. So, so it is very bizarre the last year um, promoting a movie called Brotherhood, dealing with the rawness of losing my older brother. And it's, it's kind of interesting because the movie is about brotherhood and obviously it's about a, and obviously because it's about a, um, you know, a horrific event. uh, It's been odd promoting a movie called, called brotherhood having lost my brother. But, but, but the thing that's very interesting, I think is, um, the film is about grief as well and survival. And in my grief, it's kind of interesting to me looking back on the film and just saying to myself, how see realizing how much I got right um, as far as grief goes. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that about your brother, because I know even looking at the stats um, since COVID and the lockdowns and isolation, that there have been so many people, um, loved ones that ha- are experiencing what you're experiencing. Um, and it's not really being talked. It's kind of the hidden story of the pandemic. And uh, so so thank you for, for sharing that because I think uh, there's more people than you know going through and walking that similar journey. For you, I mean, kind of being in still that, you know, it's still super raw. Um, what have been some of your coping mechanisms? You know, you've got a movie talking about grief and you see now how much you got right. How are you walking that line yourself? When my brother died, there was so much to do and being active um, kind of helps me deal with my grief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had to sell his car. I had to empty his apartment. I had to put it into a locker. Then I had to empty the locker. Um, there was a lot of things that had to be done. Like I had to get the, you know, the... Um, get the gravestone organized and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so when you've lost a loved one and there's so much to do, that kind of helps you deal with the grief because there's just so much to do. Um, It's the time when you kind of stop doing those things, kind of like the administrative work runs out. uh, And, and then that feels like the darkest times, right? Like, um, Mm -hmm. The, when the business of death is complete. Um, so, so I, I mean, I, I think I, I coped by uh, 
by dealing with the the business of my brother's death um and then you know marketing brotherhood is 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 a pleasure for me i i enjoy all of that uh i joined uh i I did have like uh some therapy uh to deal with my grief and then i also joined this fantastic group called mom stop the harm which is uh, a group uh, that's only been around for about four years, which is a bunch of mothers, what started with mothers, but basically it's a group for anyone who's lost a loved one to fentanyl poisoning. And they, uh, you know, I had like a session with them last night and because of COVID we're all on Zoom and everything, but that is nourishment for my soul, talking to people who have experienced the same thing. They've lost their daughter or they've lost their husband or they've lost their brother to fentanyl poisoning. And, uh, you know, one lady, when we wrapped up yesterday, she said, I feel like you're my family. I feel like you're all my family. Um, I remember the first time I had uh, a session with Mom Stop the Harm, I, I got off a Zoom call and I said to my mom, I was like, it's, it's, it feels like everyone's been speaking Latin to me. And all of a sudden, everyone was talking English again. Mm. So, so that was really good. One of the grim statistics Sorry, a grim statistic is such a, oh my God, I've heard that so much in the media in the last year. Oh no, it was grim milestone. Sorry, it's been overused. As a writer, I shouldn't use cliches. Um, But uh, a grim statistic, for lack of a better phrase, is is that in Canada, it's about 80% of the people who die of fentanyl poisoning are men. And they're young men. Mm. And... I think because of the social issues that we're dealing with right now and the public passions that are inflamed right now just doesn't seem to be the time that anyone wants to talk about men's issues. And I think that is a shame because the statistic that's looking at staring at us right in our face is that it's mostly men who are dying so this, you know, is an issue that's close to my heart, obviously, because I've lost my older brother. But, you know, I've also made a movie called Brotherhood, which is about young men. I am worried about the state of young men. Uh, one of the books I used in my research uh, when I was writing Brotherhood is called Real Boys, uh, which is about the boy crisis, which is something that, you know, academics have been talking about since about the 90s, you know, about how boys are falling behind in school. Um, A lot of the focus is on uh, girls' excellence, which is great, you know, absolutely. Girls deserve that richly. And boys are being left behind. Uh, Parents don't know how to, what is the modern way to parent a young boy? Uh, Boys have different needs than girls. And how do we kind of like stop this um, how do we how do we stop how do we help our boys who are listless and apathetic and alone and angry, uh, who are hiding, who just want to play video games, who are not engaging? You know, at its worst, we have something like uh, the Columbine massacre in the late '90s. Today, we have incel culture, like the man who drove the van down Young Street and just. You know, like, like, where did that come from? Like, like, where did that come from? So, you know, we, 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 we talk about mental health a lot more these days, which is good. 
I, I feel like a lot of focus is, is put on women and girls these days and, and boys are, are being left behind. Um, toxic masculinity, which is a phrase which I have a problem with anyway, just seems to be painted across people and young people and, and boys who are guiltless. They are not responsible for the toxicity of the men who came before them. They are new. They are bright. They are going, they are walking into the 21st century, yawning and eyes half open and trying to figure out how to be a man and what is the manly middle ground, uh, which is good and, and, and fair and acceptable and will give them happy lives. My brother, in a way, you know, when I read my brother's eulogy, I said my brother was both Peter Pan and one of the Lost Boys. Mm. He was 47 years old. He never quite grew up. And he was definitely one of the Lost Boys. I love my brother with all of my heart. But he was a very frustrating person for my family and me. And, and my brother was a white straight male. My brother was not a villain um, because of that, because of his immutable characteristics. He was a good person and he was also like a bad person. And two things could be true at the same time. We all have a yin and a yang. Um, and and in my group, like um, there's someone in my group who lost their son when he was very young, when he was a teenager. And that could have been my brother because um, my brother partied like that when he was a teenager and he experimented like that when he was a teenager, teenager. And the thing is, is that my brother didn't change. The drugs changed. Mm. Uh, we have a toxic, toxic drug supply now. Uh, exacerbated by the border closures because of COVID-19. But, um, you know, my, my brother could have, uh, if he, if the drugs were like that, then my brother could have, we could have lost him when he was 17 years of age. When this lady in my group speaks about her teenage son, my heart breaks in half. It just breaks in half. And there's another mom who talks about her son who is about 21 or 22. And um, she was saying that they were in a group of like six friends, six male friends, and, and two of them have died because of, because of drug overdoses. And that breaks my heart as well. And it's just like, like, how, why? And all these people who are in my group are just regular people. Like, I think there's this fallacy where we think, oh, like the people who are uh, experiencing addiction are, are, are bad people, or, you know, they're somehow like, the, you know, they're, you know, downtown East Siders or whatever, you know, and, and it's all this judgment and othering, but it's all just regular nuclear families. It just, it's so unfortunate to hear about just the pain that's happening and kind of people falling through the the cracks, really. 
Um, you already you mentioned some of the questions that all of this has brought up, and this is the Why Me Project. So um, I want to keep on that question trend. And for you during this process, you know, whether it be personally, you know, what happened with your brother or otherwise, um, any main Why Me moments that stand out to you? Well, I definitely I can't approach it as a victim because I feel like I'm not a victim, and I never have been a victim. I'm someone who takes the raw materials that have been thrown at me or dumped on me and I make them into something. And I, I mean, that's kind of like the filmmaker way or the good filmmaker way, I think, especially like guerrilla filmmaking, uh, especially like guerrilla filmmaking, because it's, it's like uh, you're constantly making lemonade out of lemons. So I can't see it as from a victim point of view. And also I, these days I kind of feel like victimhood is kind of overplayed. Um, and there's people I see like say on social media, especially almost sort of fetishize victimhood. And that makes me feel really uncomfortable um, because I, I, I don't see that as a way of moving through life that's constructive. I do not see victimhood as being constructive. I certainly have had like a lot of things happen to me, but I honestly do feel that, you know, if I may use another cliche, that a diamond is forged under pressure underground. The only way a plane takes off is because all this air is rushing at it and that causes the plane to rise. So when I have things that are coming at me, you know, if it, it starts as a pebble and then it's a stone and then it's a brick and then it's a boulder, like I need to be aware of that, right? Like, and hopefully learn my lesson when the pebble is thrown. And if I haven't by then, maybe when the rock is thrown. My older brother had a pebble and a stone and a rock and a brick and then a boulder thrown at him. And he didn't see any of that. He wasn't aware of any of those signs. And then, then the meteor hit him, right? Mm. So to answer your question, the why me, I mean, part of me wants to be clever and say, why not me? But I don't feel lucky. I feel blessed. Uh, I because I've always been someone who's put myself closer to the luck. I've been strategic about it. Like I live in Vancouver. I've gone to Toronto four times a year. My mom's like, why are you going there again? It's like, I'm going to put myself <laughs> closer to the luck. I'm putting myself in the middle of the Toronto film festival to be closer to the luck. I did that mini tour, you know, presenting brotherhood. What's the strategic reason I'm putting myself closer to the luck. As, as far as kind of like the, the bad things that have happened to me, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever, ever said why me, because I, I interpret that kind of like as, as a victim statement and, and, it, and it, I just don't feel like a victim. There have been times in my grief that have actually felt quite beautiful and it's kind of hard to describe. There's times in my grief that feel lovely, that feel magical. And I, and I don't know why I don't feel that, God has sent anything at me that I can't handle um, or can't, you know, reconfigure into, 
into some kind of uh, blessing or skill, including my brother's death. And, you know, seven months after my brother died, my grandmother died in quarantine. Now she died of old age. I never imagined that I wouldn't see my grandmother for the last year of her life. But I know that I know what, what, what my grandmother would want for me. Right. So even just kind of like cleaning my house, my mother, my grandmother would want me to clean my house. You know, my mother, my grandmother, she'd be like, Oh, are you doing your exercises? My grandmother would want me to go to the gym. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother would want me to shave. Uh, my grandmother would want me to be kind to people. So in the tragedy, I fought, try to find grace and I try to find beauty because that is certainly the way my grandmother comported herself. And with my brother's death, I try to find, it's made me, it's probably made me kinder, uh, especially if I walk around the downtown east side in Vancouver and I see what's there. It's made me more compassionate. It's also made me more private. I appreciate the perspective because for what we've dubbed our projectors, those who listen on a regular basis, you know, it's nice to hear that different perspective. It's like I heard somebody say that um, they lost somebody really close to them and they felt grief, but then they felt grateful that they had somebody in their life that was so important that they felt that loss. So like that loss was showing that they had had something incredible and they were able to paint it from a different perspective. And I think after, you know, 19 months of people literally grieving, you know, what they used to be able to do, grieving people they've lost, like it's just been a season of grief. It's refreshing to hear a different perspective on those moments. And, you know, why me moments, sometimes coming from a victim perspective, sometimes not, but it's always refreshing just to see different perspectives um, when people approach them. Well, the, um, you know, brotherhood is about these boys who encounter this storm and they hang on to a canoe for the course of an evening. And it is only through fellowship and camaraderie and dignity and grace and kindness that there's any survivors. So when COVID hit uh, and say like a bunch of my screenings got canceled, the theaters would contact me and apologize and say, our theater's closing. We're so sorry. And I would say to each and every one of them, I can't make a movie about a bunch of people experiencing a natural disaster and doing it with dignity and grace and then be mad that my film is being canceled because of a natural disaster. Mm. It, is, it is no different, right? And there's that expression, God's delays aren't God's denials. And that's incredibly, that's true because theaters eventually reopened in the summertime. And there was only so many screenings of Jurassic Park and E.T. and Back to the Future that the theaters could do. So I contacted the theaters and they wanted to screen Brotherhood because it was new content. So it had a second wind. And then when theaters reopened this summer, Brotherhood had had a third wind because all the rules of distribution had gone out the window, you know, with mm. day and date release. And, you know, who cares if the movie is 
officially two years old. Like there's an audience for it, right? Because people are the brave ones, I guess, or the ones who understand science are going back to the cinemas. So, so there was always, there was always, a, there was always a gift tucked in to the inconvenience. There was always a gift tucked into the tragedy uh, in everything that's happened uh, for me. And, and, you know, yes, like the, like, like the last 19 months have been about COVID, but for me, the, it's been about my brother's death, which was very unexpected and very traumatic for me and my family. There was my grandmother's death, who I was very close to my grandmother, and, you know, losing her was like losing the sun that all of our planets revolved around. And then thirdly, there's COVID, right? The thing that, that disturbs me the most about COVID is, and this is especially true on social media, is that I feel like it's turned neighbor against neighbor and people are at each, other, at each other's throats. And I find that to be really distressing. Like I got off social media kind of like after my brother died because I was like, I think that social media, I mean, social media is the tool. So it's not really toxic. It's what people do with it. But I just see so much hate, anger, anxiety. And I just needed to kind of like unplug myself from all of that. And I really wish that my hope for, for our country, let, I can only speak for my, let's, I'll, I'll speak for the, uh, try to speak for our country right now, is that kind of like in the spirit of brotherhood, which is about facing a natural disaster, facing an adversary, uh, brings us together and brings us together to work in fellowship and, and brings us together as a community to face a common foe instead of turning on one another. Because that's what I feel like is happening right now. We're kind of all turning on each other. We're flashing our teeth at one another. And I don't see that as a viable way forward. It took you... It wasn't 14 years, but you, you said it was something like 14 years in order to go between film and film. Is there a what's next? Is there a going to continue to promote the movie or are you looking for writing another film that we're going to be able to, to have this conversation with you in 14 years from now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll be holograms. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very excited to 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 do another film and uh, and to write something. So like right now, yes, a lot of my um, my efforts are on on promoting brotherhood. However, I I do have uh, a couple ideas for other projects, and um, there's uh, two books that I'm looking at that I'm thinking about adapting. So. However, it's like right now, I would say the, the thing, the project that I'm working on immediately is um, working on my green card. Um, mm. And I don't, I love living in Vancouver and I, I definitely don't want to leave Vancouver, but for all of my career, I've basically like been going to Toronto four times a year, putting myself closer to the luck um, and trying to stake out a career. Uh, like where we're at now, I, I don't quite see a way forward in Canada. Um, I just don't think it's happening. Um, the 
the feature film industry in Canada is, is very, well, it's barely an industry. It's very frustrating. The distributors aren't bringing their A game. It's more of a television industry. It's very hard to get into. I'm, I'm mid-career. I, I just don't see a, a path forward in Canada. Um, w- right now, we just seem to be very consumed with identity politics and kind of like the immutable characteristics that we all have. And, and I, I want to I be in a world where we're focused on story and uh, telling great stories and, and, and doing great projects. And, you know, that's happening everywhere. And, but there just seems to be more work in Los Angeles. And, and maybe uh, it would behoove me to go down to uh, LA like four times a year or even San Francisco four times a year then go back and forth to Toronto. Movie is uh, available right now. You can go to at Brotherhood1926 on the socials. Uh, Richard, we appreciate you taking some time, sharing your heart and uh, spending time with us. Thank you so much. It was a pure pleasure. I I don't want to Christianize this, but this is uh, definitely a lot to unpack in such an incredible interview. It really was. And I appreciated the honesty. We talked Mm -hmm. about a lot of things Um, and it, hopefully gets the the wheels turning you know it's easy to forget different groups when you're focused on one group it's easy to forget about just simply loving our neighbors when we Mm. are so just tunnel vision on me and my family um and it's been kind of survival mode for a lot of us for almost two years and so just a great reminder you know like in the movie brotherhood right like it's people coming together and it's because they came together that there were survivors yeah you know because we come together and support each other we will get through this yeah look out for one another my goodness mm-hmm. um don't forget you can download uh, whether it's our this episode maybe it's uh, past episodes some of our rewind episodes some reruns uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud. You can go to faithstrongtoday.com. Reach out to us on our socials too, Holly. Yeah, please do. We love hearing from you. And make sure you share this with a friend. If you think that this will be encouraging to them, please, our gift to them, this podcast. That's really all we have. 